Well, good morning. About uh, three weeks ago now, um, I stood up here and gave you an update following my sabbatical. And uh, I don't know if you could tell, but there was kind of a sense of peace and tranquility from that time. The Lord had just refreshed us in some amazing ways. And then it was over. (laughs) Three weeks ago, uh, our oldest son, Graham, uh, sold his house here in Lubbock, came back, and we moved everything out of his house into our garage as kind of a holding pattern until he found something in Fort Worth. Well, that following week, he found something in Fort Worth, so he came back to Lubbock. We loaded everything out of the garage into trailers and cars, and he made his way to Fort Worth. And at that time, Terry's mom uh, had had some health issues, so she went on to Dallas um, from Fort Worth after unloading Graham and stayed there with her mom. In the meantime, her mom's health uh, started to decline, and so Grant and I went to Dallas to join them, and unfortunately, her mom uh, passed. Unfortunate for us, good for her, that she uh, passed and went to be with the Lord on Friday, and so we drove back to Lubbock with Grant on Saturday, got in late, got up early Sunday morning, packed all of his stuff, and moved him to Graham on Sunday And then met with a funeral home on Monday and had services later that week. So we had visitation on Thursday, and on Friday night, about 3.30, we had somebody ring the doorbell there at Ellen's house where we were staying, Terry's mom. I thought, well, that's kind of strange. Probably kids in the neighborhood just being silly, so I ignored it. But they kept ringing the doorbell. I thought, what in the world is going on? So I got up and walked around to the front door only to find somebody's face pressed against the glass of the front door. And then I heard them say, somebody's here. And I looked out the window, and y'all, I'm not kidding. There was a U-Haul van parked in front of the house with six people dressed in all black ready to unload that house if we weren't there. I just thought, this world has gone completely nuts, right? So we then had the service on Friday. We did not sleep for the rest of the night. (laughs) We weren't sure if they were going to come in the back door, the side door, what door they were going to come in. But anyway, we had the service on Friday, drove home last night, walked into the home for the first time without kids in our home. I feel like I'm in another world. Like, what has happened? But, But here's the reason I tell you this. You know my story. You know how much panic and anxiety has ruled my life. Yet, despite the chaos of all that we've experienced in the last three weeks, I cannot tell you how powerful the peaceful presence of God has been prevailing through everything. It's like that passage in Psalms that says, where can I go from your presence? Because everywhere we go, no matter how low it is or how high it is, you are there. And so we have so, so much to be grateful for. The way that you guys have loved us, whether it's Michael and and David showing up to help move Graham or just even this week with people driving six hours to Dallas to go to a visitation on Thursday and a graveside on on Friday just to show their love for us. I mean, we are blown away and we are so, so grateful. So uh, thank you so much for your prayers and support. And with that, let's, let's pray together. Father, you truly love us. 
We are so grateful for the way that you have made your presence known, the way you have demonstrated that love in very tangible ways, whether it's just the encouragement, affirmation of your word spoken deeply to our hearts, whether it's the love of our friends and their presence, whether it's just the simple ways that you have shown up in some of the hardest of times, but you have made yourself known and your love has been evident. And just as Brian has prayed, I want to echo that prayer. Lord, I just ask that somehow this morning, every person here would experience that same sense of deep, pursuing, sincere, compassionate love that you have for them. Open our hearts to experience that in new ways this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I think we would all agree we live in a culture obsessed with self-image. There's the, this is the age of self-promotion on, on social media, right? It's the rise of the influencers. Men and women showcasing seemingly perfect lives, flawless appearances, unencumbered with every possible means of success. And we can't help but look at that and feel inadequate in comparison to these unrealistic ideals. We just don't measure up to these highly curated, photoshopped lives. But somehow we still try. And study after study reveals the result and exposing an an unprecedented increase in depression, anxiety, suicide, self-harm, eating disorders, they're all on the rise. Our culture of comparison has led us to a, a life of lonely disappointment. Our hearts are corrupted by a negative false narrative that continues to tell us, I'm not enough. But we need to know that, that this deep insecurity wasn't caused by social media. It, it certainly has made things worse, but that's always been a part of our flawed humanity. Because when we play this infamous, infamous comparison game, the reality is we lose every single time. We need something outside of ourselves to really tell us our true value and worth. And that's where I believe the the writer of the song is going to lead us this morning. But before we go there, we kind of have to shift gears a little bit. Um, Colin, I think this mic's a little bit hot. Or Taylor, can you all adjust that a little bit? Um, Because when we last left our lovers, you remember they were face-to-face in this loving embrace, right? But now as we open up, the, sheen, the scene has shifted. The, the curtain opens to something completely different. And so let's look at what that is, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1 in the Song of Solomon. It says in verse 5, I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy. For the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. You see, after longing for the affection of her husband, the woman now confesses her true deep insecurities. 
she, if you will, begins to play the comparison game with the daughters of Jerusalem. These are the fair-skinned ladies of nobility who stare at her with a hostile glare. I found this poetic paraphrase of this passage that was really helpful for me as I was processing this uh, in preparation for this morning. And I want to read it to you because I think it will help bring in some of the emotion of what's being communicated here. It says this, Sun-scorched am I and stunning. O city maidens, pale creations of cosmetic creams. But as for me, with darkness deep do I luster shine. The warm black depth of distant nomad tents, of Solomon's dusky shades. Stare not at me so deeply dark. Avert your hostile gaze. The sun, her fiery gaze has cast on me and burnt me with her heat. My brother's anger also flared. They too took me all to task and made me labor in the sun to cultivate their vineyards, their trellises to mend. Alas, alas, that luscious vine, uniquely mine, I've had no time to tend. Isn't that beautiful? And I think it's helpful, too, because it helps us understand the emotion behind her insecurity, which, by the way, has nothing to do with her race. Instead, it's revealing her negative self-narrative by playing that comparison game in the world. See, she's an Israelite woman with a Middle Eastern complexion made even darker by the sun. She's not ashamed about her race. She's insecure about her value in society. She has a working class complexion, and she doesn't measure up to the Instagram models of her day. The woman spends her days laboring in the field while they are pampered in the salons. You may remember from the book of Esther, when the women were being prepared for the queen, it says, uh, I don't have this verse, but I'll read it to you. Um, It says in verse uh, 12 of chapter 2, for 12 months, under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. That's who she is comparing herself to. But she spends her days laboring in the fields, tending the vineyards, and she just simply doesn't have enough time to work on her own appearance. So what will her husband think? Will he look at the maidens and find them more attractive? Does he expect her to be more like them? Will he be disappointed in what he sees? Do you sense her insecurity? Have you ever experienced it yourself? (laughs) When, When you've played that comparison game with others, comparing your appearance or your clothes or your success or your children or you name it, fill in the blank. We're really good at playing that comparison game. And like her, we end up losing Every single time. We played it, and and that's why Scripture is so powerful. I think it speaks to our human experience. Because we all want to know if we measure up. 
We all want to know, do we have what it takes? How do we compare? And for this woman, like many of us, she's having to work through her own history of rejection because she tells us that she was rejected by her own family. Her brothers forced her to work in the fields, valuing her productivity over who she was as a person. So no wonder she was struggling with insecurity. And how many of us have had similar experiences where we have been betrayed by our family or our friends or our spouse? And so we're having to work through all the history of insecurity, asking ourselves that question, do I have what it takes? Do I measure up? How do I compare? Will I be accepted? Look at how she continues in verse 7. Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself? beside the flocks of your companions. If you yourself do not know, most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. So now, with all these insecurities, she turns to her husband and she wants to be in his presence. She wants to find security in his approval experiencing the acceptance of his love. But her insecurity is causing her to question his interest. Since she can't find him, maybe he doesn't want to be found. In verse 7, she asks, where are you? Where can I find you? Please tell me where to go. She says, don't make me wonder. So I look desperate among your companions. And then comes the response in verse 8, which is, by the way, the very first time we hear from the man in the song. And notice the words he chooses. He says, most beautiful among women. Man, don't you know that had to immediately put her heart and mind at ease? Most beautiful among women. It's like the Husband in Proverbs 31, 29, when he looks at his wife and he says, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. You're the one that matters most to me. He then gives her instructions on where to find him. He invites her to to steal away for some time together. He welcomes her into his presence as he pastures in the field. And he affirms his desire to be with her. And I just wonder if this husband may not have perceived what was going on in his wife's heart by the questions and the urgency with which she asked them. He has no way of knowing what her secret thoughts or insecurities might have been, that she's comparing herself to the daughter's formation. In men, I believe this is one of our most important responsibilities as a husband. I can't tell you how many young men I've talked to who are earlier in their marriage, and my counsel is this, learn early and often to be a wise student of your wife's heart. Be a student of your wife's heart. Learn to perceive her needs 
before they are ever expressed. And I think that's maybe what we see in our passage. Because look at how it continues in verse 9. To me, my darling, you are like a mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with a string of beads. We will make for you ornaments of gold with, with beads of silver. Okay, when we first read this, it may not seem all that romantic to compare your wife to a horse. Okay, I get that. But we've got to read this within the cultural context with which it was written. Because he's comparing her, it says, to a mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. And there's probably a couple of ways that this can be understood. First is the fact that, that horses that are used in Pharaoh's army with his chariots were covered with elaborate decoration. I've given you a, a picture of an artist's rendition of what that looked like. And based on what we see next in our passage, we can kind of see the connection here. But he kept, because he tells her about all the ornaments that he's going to provide for her, all the, the necklace and the earrings, not to hide her flaws, but to accent, accentuate her beauty. And, and keep in mind, he didn't hear any of the hidden thoughts of her insecurity, but he is, I believe, a faithful student of his wife's heart. He knows what she needs to hear. And she needs to know that she is still beautiful in his sight. And these words must have brought life into her heart. But there's even a more subtle application that may be hidden in these words as well. Because there is, there's a story hidden and embedded within Egyptian history. It's a true story. And it's a story about how Pharaoh's horses were distracted. You see, all of the horses that, were, uh, that, that led the chariots, they were stallions. In other words, they're male horses that were burning with testosterone. These are war horses. And, and there's a story within their ancient Egyptian history of one of their enemies who had the brilliant idea of sending out a mare, a female horse, amongst all these testosterone-filled stallions, and they went nuts. I mean, it almost cost them the war. And I just wonder if with something that, like that in mind, he's telling her that unlike the women who scorn her and look away, he sees her as the one who captures his undivided attention. It's as if he's saying, you, my love, make my head turn. Like a mare among the stallions of Pharaoh's chariots. She is the object of his desire, and he only has eyes for her. Wow, what a man, right? I mean, it's so good, so true. He knows her heart. He speaks exactly what she needs to hear. And I believe she has a whole different perspective of herself when she sees herself through the eyes of the one who loves her most. So let me start with husbands. And let me say very clearly to you men, this is our calling in marriage. 1 Peter 3.7 says, you husbands... In the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not 
be hindered. And we talked about this when we did our study of 1 Peter recently. And we said that, that being identified as someone weaker is not some derogatory statement. It has nothing to do with a woman's insufficiency. But it has everything to do with her vulnerability. Especially in the context of that culture, which was a male-dominated society. So Peter says, live with your wife in an understanding manner. I might paraphrase that and say, be a student of your wife's heart. Protect her from the false narratives that she hears from the world. Don't let her believe anything that is intended to demean or diminish her value. Highlight what is right and good and true. And by all means, don't be the one who is responsible for pointing out all of her flaws. Like we see in our passage, we are reminded that we have been called to tell our wives about their true value and worth. We are called to be a student of their heart, anticipating their needs before they are ever spoken. Routinely speaking life-giving words of affirmation. And, and Paul warns us that if we are not faithful to our wife in this way, God will not attend to our prayers. Because keep in mind what we talked about two weeks ago when we said you simply cannot separate divine love from human love. These two realities are codependent upon one another. We cannot claim to love God and then be unkind, uncaring, and insensitive to our wife. These two relationships are deeply interdependent and growing apart from your wife will inevitably create distance in your relationship with God. So husbands, tell your wife today how beautiful she is to you. Compliment her clothes. Let her know that she still makes your head turn and your heart sink. Honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And help her see who she is in the eyes of God, who is the true and only true lover of her soul. And ladies, let me encourage you. Please do not get caught up in the game of comparison. How you look, how you dress, how you parent in comparison to others. It's a game you will lose every single time. Your true worth and beauty is not something that you manufacture. It's what you receive. Your beauty is based on your value and worth in the eyes of God. And hear me clearly when I tell you he delights in you. And that's something we all need to hear because I feel confident that at some point or another, we've all lost ourselves in this game of comparison. Maybe we're single and we look around and we see all of our friends who are getting married. Or maybe we're married and we look around and see all of our friends who are having a family. 
Or, or maybe we're in a job, but we look around and see everybody else who's more successful than we are. We compare our cars. We compare our houses. And in, in time, once we play this game long enough, we lose our identity of who we truly are in the eyes of God. We need to see ourselves from the perspective of the one who loves us beyond measure, more than we can ask or imagine. Finding our true identity in him. Knowing, and don't miss this, that Jesus does not love us because we are beautiful. He loves us in order to make us beautiful. He's not drawn to us because of what is lovely in us. He sees beyond who we are to the beauty of who he has created us to be. The scripture tells us that while we were sinners, okay, now think about that. That's, that's ugly, that's soiled, that's, that's something that, that is not observably beautiful. In fact, it's just the opposite, but it says, and yet while we were sinners, Christ loved us. He didn't wait for us to get our act together and clean ourselves up. In fact, he died on the cross in order to make us clean. We need to live in accordance with what he says is true. Letting his word speak to our hearts, knowing that we are, as his word declares, complete in Christ, lacking in nothing. That we are free from condemnation, that we are eternally secure in his love, that we are a new creation, that we are an overcomer, that we are a child of God, beloved in his sight. Martin Luther once made a wonderful statement along these lines. It's short but deep, so listen closely. He says, the grace of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. Let me say that again. Let it soak in. The grace of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. See, we just need to drown out all the false narratives of the world and listen to what God says is true. And so we're going to do something together this morning that I would just invite you to enter into. I think sometimes it's easy to come to church and be a consumer, to just take things in, and maybe it sticks, maybe it doesn't. Kind of depends on what happens when you walk out the doors today. But before we leave, I want to invite you to engage with this truth personally. I want you to picture yourself in the presence of the Lord, and I want you to hear him speak his word to you. So I want you to make yourself comfortable. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I want you to put yourself in his presence, and I want you to listen to his words, and this is what he says. Let the voice of God speak deep to your heart as he tells you, you are beautiful to me. And I delight in you. I 
want you to hear the voice of Jesus speaking to you in those words. And, and I realize that there, there may be some who find that difficult. You may not feel beautiful. You may not feel loved. So I want to ask you to notice what your difficulties are. What, what's standing in the way and then offer those to the Lord. It may be your history of rejection. What others have told you. I want to invite you to offer that to the Lord. You might want to lay aside, uh, lay a, a, something to the side of what you hear the Lord speak to you. Maybe something that has been spoken to you by someone else. Maybe they've said it in the context of marriage. Maybe something you've heard from your husband or your wife. And I want you to give thanks for that. Just think about how meaningful and settling it was to hear those words. And then I want you to realize that Jesus' words are even greater than those. You are beautiful to me. And I delight in you. Or maybe these are words that you wish someone had said to you, but they haven't. Either recently or ever. So offer up to him the sense of missing out. Be honest. Be vulnerable before the Lord and hear his words like a great flood of love filling that space. You are beautiful to me and I delight in you. Lord, we confess to you our insecurity about how we look, about what we've achieved or not achieved, how we behaved or not behaved, about how others see us or don't see us. Thank you that you see us as beautiful in your beauty. Help me to hear these words, not just now, but all throughout this week, may they echo in my heart, you are beautiful to me, and I delight in you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Great truth. Now, let me just confront something real quick. There's some of you who, based on what we did here at the end, are saying, you know, I'm just not a touchy-feely person. And in all kindness, I want to tell you, you need to get over yourself. <laughs> I think one of the things that we need to realize is the Bible is filled with the tender, compassionate love of Jesus, who is, in fact, the love of your soul. And this is why I think the song is so powerful, is because it's going to invite us through this relationship between a husband and wife to understand the deep and loving intimacy that Jesus has for us. And we need to go to those deep places. We need to feel in the very core of our being who he says we are and believe it with every ounce of who we are. 
that he does delight in us, that he is the lover of our soul, and he finds us beautiful. Man, if you don't do anything else this week, would you please just let that sink in? The creator of the universe, the savior of the world, looks at you individually and says, I delight in you. You are beautiful to me. Allow this study to take you to places that you may not have gone to normally, but I promise you, if you will, you will experience a richness of a relationship that God intended from the very beginning. And you will be not only drawn more deeply into a relationship with him, but it will transform how you relate to others, including your spouse. So go there bravely. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for our time this morning and for the beauty of the song that invites us into the intimacy of a loving relationship that you desire to have with us. And through that relationship with you, we then experience the intimacy that you created in our relationships with one another, whether that's husband and wife, whether that's family, whether that's friendship. It, it all flows out of your love that we were created for and from. And so, Lord, help us to experience that even more deeply this week as we meditate on the truth of your word when you tell us you are beautiful to me and I delight in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.